Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This is message number nine of the series, From the Book of James, with speaker Pastor Steve Benninger, entitled, Real Faith Repents of Loving the World, from James 4, 1 through 10. You can find the sermon outline for this message at www.enewlife.com The preacher's job is to proclaim God's truth from God's word. That's his mandate. That's not negotiable. As Paul, the great apostle, near the end of his life, he penned a letter to a young preacher named Timothy... In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, he gave him a solemn charge, preach the word, preach the word. Earlier in his own ministry, Paul had told the elders of the Ephesian church this, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27. You see, God's servant has a divine commission to speak the full range of God's truth found in Scripture, and not sidestep the harder truths just to try and keep people happy. As Paul wrote, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ, Galatians 1.10. Well, in this series in James, just about every week, somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Pastor Steve, I'm loving James. Keep that good word coming from that book. But I'm wondering if that's going to happen this week because the passage that we come to this morning is really strong. James' intensity about what he's writing about reaches its climax in James chapter 4. Let me read it for you, beginning in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor or gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. So, Lord God Almighty, I pray now that you would help me to preach the Word, your holy Word. And as I do, help me to be faithful to it. Minister the truth to your people. Open our eyes to our true spiritual condition before you, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, this is strong stuff. I want us to remember what Pastor James is going for in his letter that he's writing here. He's concerned, as you might recall, for people to have real faith, real, genuine, saving faith, a faith that results in being born again, in being truly converted to Christ, in living a transformed life. James knew that back then, just as in our day, there were people, maybe some in this room today, who claim to be Christians, who come to church, who talk the talk, but who don't actually possess real saving faith. In his day, some of those folks were self-deceived. Others knew they weren't saved, but they were trying to come off as Christians, trying to look the part. But regardless, James in his letter presents really a series of tests by which those who profess to be Christians can know if their faith is really genuine, if they're the real deal. And so far as we walk through James, we've seen nine or ten of these tests. And when I look at this section, I see another one, yet another test, another evidence of true saving faith. And here it is. Real faith doesn't love the world. Real, genuine faith is not in love with this world. Look at verse 4 again. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So evidently, there were some people in those congregations that James was writing to who felt that they could love God and be in love with the world, and that was okay. Like, God's good with that, it's all good. But James says, nope, nope, it's not all good, because God will have none of that. And if that's confusing to you, if I say that and, and, and that doesn't set right with you, maybe it's because in our culture, Christianity is often seen as something other than a covenant love relationship with God. Some people have the idea that, that Jesus, and you've heard me say this before, that, that Jesus is just another accessory that you add to your life, like, you know, I've got my smartphone, I've got my tablet, I've got my GPS, and i got Jesus, so I'm all set. Some people think that having Christ is just another nice option for becoming a more well-rounded person, but God doesn't view it that way. He doesn't. He sees it differently. He sees Christianity as an all-consuming relationship, listen, that cost him dearly to have. It's an exclusive covenant of love and affection that God pours his heart and soul into. Did you know that? It's a big deal to him. And he expects that same kind of devotion in return. I know there are many people in this church who do understand this, who do get this. If you get a chance sometime walk through the hallway of our offices back here, and outside of my office, there's a bulletin board on the wall. And we've pinned on that bulletin board dozens and dozens of love notes from new lifers to God that you wrote back in the Easter season when we had the Stations of the Cross here in this room, and you wrote out those notes to Him, and we've pinned them to that bulletin board. And when I read those notes, it just warms my heart because it tells me that so many of you get it. <laughs> You get that God loved you and loves you, and you love the Lord in return. He's your all. He's your everything. You see, real saving faith loves God supremely and cannot stand having a heart that's divided. 
whose affections are divided. Do not love the world. Do not be a friend of the world, he says. And I know that you know that when Scripture speaks of the world in this negative sense, it's not talking about the people of the world, right? We know that our Lord has called us to love our neighbors, to love the people of the world. But when James uses this phrase, the world, he's talking about the evil and corrupt system that is prevalent in our world, that is under the direction of who? Satan, the God of this world. He's supervising this whole thing. This system is geared to helping people sin more and sin better and love it. And it's prevalent in our culture. Jesus calls his followers away from the godless, pleasure-craving, I want what I want, when I want it, for as long as I want it, culture that prevails in our day. By the way, this is what the Apostle John meant when he penned these words in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so Jesus called his people away from embracing that self-absorbed, self-focused lifestyle. He called us to a new passion, right? A new passion, a higher pleasure, the pleasures of loving God and experiencing God's love for us. So here in this section, Jesus' brother, his half-brother, James, is exposing those in the church who are still enamored with the world, still friends of the world, as he calls them. And I've been praying this week that God's Spirit would show each and every one of us this morning to what extent we fit this profile of a friend of the world. Five characteristics. Number one, if you haven't pulled your study outline out yet, go ahead and do that. Friends of the world, number one, are consumed by selfish desires. Verses one through three. I mean, that's what the world's all about, right? Last week, Pastor Brett taught us from James 3 that the wisdom of this world is marked by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Think about a planet full, seven billion people, full of people who are bent on satisfying their egotistical cravings. A planet like that is bound to be full of what? Wars? Fightings, quarrels, conflict, and it's what we see every day, isn't it, on the news? Now, I mean, I guess you could say, well, that's to be expected out there, but what bothered James is hearing that selfishness and conflict was seeping into the church. Look at verse 4 again. Excuse me, verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Talking to the church. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And we're not sure exactly what James had heard was going on in those congregations that he was writing to, but apparently it was pretty ugly. Look at what he talks about here. Fighting, disputing, quarreling, conflict, killing. And Bible scholars debate whether James was talking about actual murders taking place, or was he just using that term to picture people assassinating each other with their words. Either way, it was pretty ugly. So as I was studying this this week on, on a whim, I think it was on Wednesday, I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to look on the news websites and see if there's any uh, stories about violence in the church. 
on that particular day, which I think was Wednesday. Here's the first headline I saw. Police say couple beat son to death in New York church. What? The opening line. A central New York couple has been charged with fatally beating their 19-year-old son inside a church, and four fellow church members have been charged with assault in an attack that also left the young man's brother severely injured, police said on Tuesday. (laughs) I had no words. No? Way to let your light shine, people, for Jesus, yeah! Yeah! James asks, where does quarreling and attacking and fighting come from? Answer, look no further than right inside the human heart, right? That's what he said. Violence arises from our own selfish desires or lusts that rage within us. And it's interesting, the word translated desires here, the Greek word is hedone, from which we get our word hedonism or hedonist, that unbridled lust for pleasure, to feel good, to look good, that gnawing craving to always have more, always want more, that obsession to have what other people have that we don't have, that gets frustrated and all upset when that desire gets blocked, right? When someone stands in our way. Listen, selfishness is worldly. That's what James is saying. And selfishness wrecks everything. I mean, there's a motto for, for the sermon today, okay? Selfishness wrecks everything. This is true, isn't it? It hijacks harmony, it massacres marriages, it fractures families. It wrecks everything. Left unchecked, it can even cause a church to implode. I got to thinking about this, and I remembered... Back when I was 15, my parents, after a lot of soul-searching and a lot of prayer, decided to switch churches. And um, our new church was actually a church plant. And I remember going the first week, there was just a lot of joy and life and vibrancy in that new church. It was a, truly a breath of fresh air to our family after we'd been smothered in legalism for about a decade. But you know what? Within less than five years, that New, alive, vibrant church had died, had dissolved. And I was away at college at the time when it happened, but a few years later, I was able to get together with the pastor, and I I sat down at lunch with him, and I said, what happened anyway? What happened? That church was was awesome. And uh, he said, well, there were two families in the church who just got into this ugly dispute with each other. I said, well, what was it over? And they said, he said, well... They, they both had teenage daughters, and their daughters had been really, really, really close, but then something came between them, probably a boy, and they got crosswise with each other, and then they turned on each other, and the families kind of lined up behind them, and then the people in the church all took sides, and he said the, the life was just sucked right out of the church, and the spirit was grieved, and it killed the church it died and just telling me about it he was grieving he was mourning the death of that church listen selfishness wrecks everything it wrecks everything and James agrees he 
He says that human selfishness creates a breeding ground for conflict. And that's true on a global scale as well as on a personal scale, right? I mean, you think about the conflicts going on in the world. You think about ISIS and their desire to create a, a caliphate. And anybody who stands in their way gets mowed down, right? All starts in here. You think about Putin kicking up his heels over in the Middle East. What does he want? That's the question. It comes from deep inside the human heart. It happens in personal relationships as well. And James says when it happens among believers, then what's happening is that the world is invading the church. Selfishness breeds conflict. It also blocks answered prayer. Here in verse 2, we, we see that famous saying, you have not because you ask not. In other words, deep down in your heart, you want things. You want to be happy. You want to be fulfilled. You want to be accepted. You want to be respected and honored. You want to be free and fulfilled, but you're seeking those things, he says, from people instead of from God, and some things only come from God. And you're frustrated because you're looking to the wrong source. And then he says, and, and, and when you do ask God, when you do finally turn to God, you ask selfishly from wrong motives, he says, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That's the same phrase used of the prodigal son who spent his share of the inheritance on feeding his sensual desires, his pleasures, right? And so James is telling these self-absorbed people that even their praying is selfish. And they're praying they have no thought of hallowing God's name, no thought of seeing his kingdom established and built and strengthened, no thought of his will being achieved and accomplished. No, their prayers ended with them, their name being hallowed, their kingdom being built, their will being done on the earth. And he says, you know what? God feels no obligation to answer prayers like that, that are selfishly motivated. The lovers of this world are consumed with their own pleasures, their own wishes, their own interests, their own plans. And remember, James is writing to people who were calling themselves Christians. So what he says next, I think would have been like when they put those paddles on someone's chest and then flip the switch and it gives them a jolt, shock treatment. I think that's what this next phrase would have felt like to them because he calls them what in verse 4? Adulterous people. You Adulterous people. Literally, it's the feminine gender. You adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? People, this is worse than you thought. How you are living your lives as Christians is tantamount, he's saying, to having an affair on God. Committing spiritual adultery. What are you doing? friendship with the world. You see, the friendship that he mentions here is not like being friends on Facebook. It's not like just hanging out together or going getting coffee at Starbucks together. This word is much deeper than that. It's sharing deeply held loves and deeply held values. It's expressing affection. It's connecting on such a deep level that James likens it to adultery. You're sharing with someone else things that should be reserved for your spouse, your covenant partner. 
So since this is in the text, I decided this week to do some online research on adultery. And then I had to go take a shower because it was, ugh. I was trying to get inside the mind of somebody who's contemplating having an affair, having a, a, a secret little thing going on on the side. And what stood out to me the most was the way that, that people have of convincing themselves, at least for a while, that they can have two partners and somehow keep them both happy, keep them both pacified and happy. So look, if Sheila just doesn't know much about Pam, and if Pam just doesn't know much about Sheila, then it's going to be okay. I like how I feel when I'm around Sheila, but I'm not ready to give up Pam yet, so I want both, and I think I can have both. And James calls that being double-minded. Not long ago, I sat in my office with a wife who was in an affair. And she's trying to keep it from her husband, but he'd grown suspicious, and he called me up and, and asked me if I would be willing to meet with her, and to her credit, she was willing to meet with me. And she sat in my office, and she told me how she, she liked so much how her lover made her feel when she was with him, but she also liked the security of having her husband's paycheck. And she said, I, I, I like both. I like having both. And I said, listen to me, listen to me. Your husband is not going to stand for this much longer. He knows what's going on. He might go out and kill this other guy. I said, and beyond that, look, I, I know it, it, it feels good to feel special to someone, that this guy is making you feel special. But I looked at her, I said, you know what? It's a mirage. It's an illusion. It's not real. It's going to leave you feeling empty and used. And think about your husband. He's over. He's feeling grieved. He's brokenhearted over your unfaithfulness to him. Think about that. He committed his whole heart to you. He, he wants your whole heart with him. I said, you know what, your place is with the man that you stood at an altar with and committed, covenanted your life to for better or for worse. And I'm calling upon you to repent of your sin. This is sin. It's wicked. Cut off the evil, adulterous affair. Cut it off completely. No more contact. Go back to your husband and confess it to him. Humbly, broken over your sin. You know what? James is saying something very similar to so-called Christians who were flirting with the world. And I think his audience would have understood, his, his Jewish, his Messianic Jewish audience, they would have recalled all those Old Testament passages where a grieving God charges his covenant people with being unfaithful to him. You know what I'm talking about? Like in Jeremiah 3.20 where he says, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Or Ezekiel 16, 38, I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood, and I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. You see, God is a jealous God. It says so right in the Ten Commandments. 
Now, when Oprah Winfrey was a teenager, she heard that God was a jealous God, and she got the wrong idea in her mind, and she, in that moment, turned away from the God of the Bible because she didn't understand God's righteous jealousy. You see, God is jealous. He's not sinfully jealous like we so often are, but God is jealous to have the undivided devotion of his people whom he has purchased with his own blood. Did you know this? True believers, if you're a Christian here today, you've actually entered into a covenant, like a marriage covenant of love with God. That's the truth. We are betrothed to him during this age, are we not? Are we not betrothed to Christ? And one day he's going to come back for us and he is anticipating finding us faithful, pure, single-hearted in our love for him. But like any mate who discovers their spouse sleeping with someone else, God's heart burns with righteous anger when he finds us embracing another lover. That's why in verse, six, or verse 5, James asks pointedly, do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? So often I think unfaithful people don't realize the seriousness of the breach of covenant. That you broke covenant with God. James here reveals that those who do that are in grave danger. You know why? Because they've made themselves enemies of God. That's number three. He calls them out as God's enemies. You adulterous people, verse 4, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. How would you like to be numbered among the enemies of God? That sounds terrifying to me. James calls them out. Calls them turncoats, traitors. Here's how Paul described uh, the enemies of God in Philippians chapter 3. For as, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their appetites. Their glory is in their shame, it means they boast about the things they do in secret. And their mind is on earthly things. Double-minded people with divided loyalties who won't cut ties with the world and repent of their spiritual adultery are indeed the enemies of God. Living only for their own appetites, gratifying the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes. And in verse 6, James says that God resists those proud self-absorbed people who will not acknowledge their unfaithfulness. God resists the proud. And in the original, that word resist, you know what it is? Stiff arms. Get that picture in your mind. God stiff arms proud people who won't humble themselves and repent. He, he, he puts them at arm's length from him. He pushes them away. You see, when people choose to stiff-arm God and push Him away and care so little about His joy and His heart and His happiness, then God begins to push them away. He's reluctant to manifest His presence in their lives. He ignores their selfish prayers. He recoils at their sins. He's distant from them. Terrifying to be called an enemy of God. There is only one thing. There's only one thing that can save such a person from the righteous anger of God. You know what it is? Grace. 
grace. God's amazing, abundant, undeserved, forgiving, purifying, transforming grace. It's incredible. Enemies of God can be restored. Because number four, they are candidates for God's grace. Verse six, he gives more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Yes, there is hope for the adulterous person. Thankfully, there's grace awaiting the unfaithful partner who has strayed. There is a pathway to being restored to covenant communion and joy. And how about this? A clear conscience before God. And this restoring grace is for those who will bow down in humility and repent. And James demands nothing less. The next four verses, 7 through 10, is one of the clearest calls to repentance in the whole Bible. So think about it. When someone who names the name of Jesus has gotten ensnared, maybe this is you this morning, has foolishly allowed their heart to be drawn away and enticed by the pleasures of this world, when their conscience is accusing them day and night, when they then sense the Spirit's conviction and hear His voice calling them away from the adulterer's bed, back to God. Listen, true believers, true Christians, those with real faith, saving faith, you know what they do? They repent. They repent. They admit their wicked affair. They cut off all ties with the adulterous partner. They come back to God in brokenness usually devastated to finally see their sin as God sees it as unfaithfulness and adultery, and they repent. Listen to the words, verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. I read that, and to me, it's beautifully disconcerting. Listen, the good news is that He will have you back. He will have you back if you truly repent. That's the condition. The language here is drawn from the Old Testament, from those many calls for God's sinful people to repent and turn back to the Lord. Notice there are ten commands and three glorious promises. First command is what? Submit. Submit yourselves to God. Return. To God, come again under His authority. Submit, place yourself under His authority. Declare Him once again to be your Lord. And it says, resist the devil. Yes, the devil, always involved in adultery. The devil whom you unwittingly allied yourself with when you chose friendship with the world. It says, resist him. It's the same word. Stiff arm the devil. Man, I like stiff-arming the devil, especially after I've messed up and repented, and he thinks he's won. I, like, I, I think you need to speak to the devil. He can't read your mind. I think you need to speak to him. And I like to say things like this, devil, you can't have me. 
sorry, I'm bought, I'm paid for by blood, I belong to Jesus Christ, I stand with Jesus, I stand against you, why don't you just go back to hell where you belong, I hate you, I hate what you do to people, I hate what you do to families, I hate what you do to marriages, you're not worthy of any glory, only my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is worthy of glory, I will live for him the rest of my life, I will never serve you, I know where you take people who serve you. My Lord is taking me to an eternal home in heaven. He loves me. He died for me. He made me one of his children. I resist you in Jesus' name. And you know what? When the devil becomes convinced that you are truly a lost cause to him, he will flee. He will flee. And he says, come near to God. You might think, no, no. If I go near to God, he's going to incinerate me my sin and you know what he should rightfully should but he won't because of the blood plead the blood Hebrews says it's only by the blood that we can come near to God and if you do he promises he will draw near to you then wash your hands sinners purify your hearts Double-minded, that's imagery that comes from the, the cleansing rituals of those Old Testament priests, the washings as they prepared to offer sacrifices and minister before the Lord. Notice it says hands and heart. Do you see that? Hands and heart. Hands means your actions, your behaviors. Heart means your desires and your inclinations. Both evil actions and evil attitudes need to be repented of. The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 24, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And then James gets super intense, doesn't he? Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's like he's taking on the mantle of the Old Testament prophets, Pleading with God's people, see your sin for what it is. Let the weight of it crush you. It's adultery, it's unfaithfulness. You've made yourself an enemy of the Lord that you covenanted with. Take your sin seriously. And then finally, the promise. I can't tell you how many times I've reminded the Lord of this promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Say it with me. And... He will lift you up. Picture now the husband. Picture the offended, betrayed, sinned against husband now, once fiery hot with rage and anger and jealousy, with his wife now there before him. She's sobbing. Her head is bowed low, devastated, broken, hating her sin now, having already cut off the affair completely, wanting to be restored, see the husband gently reach out his hand and lift up her head till her eyes meet. See him look tenderly into her tear-stained face and say, Honey, I want you back. I want you back. I forgive you. You're the one I... You're the one I covenanted with. You're the one I gave my life to. And in Jesus' case, he would say, you're the one I gave my life for. 
I want you back. I will receive you back. I forgive you. Let's renew our covenant. Let's enjoy being close again. Friends, that is grace. That's restoring grace. He will lift you up. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his grace. You know what? We don't deserve it. He could, he could divorce us. He could justly divorce us and be totally justified in doing so for our unfaithfulness to him, for breaking covenant. But his heart is to restore us and have us back. Aren't you glad for grace? He will lift you up. And who, who is this grace offered to? Who? The humble. Only to the humble. And we should understand something this morning. We should understand that both of these two things I've been talking about, repentance and restoration, are both gifts of God's grace. You know that? You say even repentance? Yep, even repentance is a gift granted by the grace of God. The want to, the desire to repent comes from where? From God. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher from the 19th century. He wrote this, Genuine spiritual mourning for sin is the work of the Spirit of God. Repentance is too choice a flower to grow in nature's garden. Pearls grow naturally in oysters, but penitence never shows itself in sinners except divine grace works it in them. If thou hast one particle of real hatred for sin, God must have given it to thee, for human nature's thorns never produced a single fig. Repentance is a gift of God's grace, and certainly restoration is a gift of God's grace, right? It can happen only because the Son of God shed his lifeblood so that sins could be paid for in full, and guilty sinners, even saved guilty sinners, could be forgiven and restored. Well, I think James was bringing his readers to a point of decision, don't you? You've got to make a choice. And I think the Lord is calling us in this room to make a choice this morning. And I know there are people in this room who are the epitome of being double-minded. And you need to make a choice. Is it going to be me first? Or is it going to be God first? Is it going to be, I want what I want, when I want it, for as long as I want it? And anybody who gets in my way, I'm going to get all upset with. Or is it, I want what God wants? Is it, I'm going to use other people to get what I want? Or is it, I'm going to serve other people so they can have what God wants them to have? Is it, I'm going to love my sin, I'm going to cherish my sin, I'm going to hold on to my sin. I like what my sin does for me. Or is it, I'm going to hate sin because of what it did to Jesus, what it does to people. Am I going to proudly resist God, or am I going to humbly be broken for God, before God? Am I going to say, I don't need God's grace. I'm good. I'm good. Or no, no, no. I'm desperate for the grace of God. You know, it occurs to me it's God's mercy coming to us today, calling us to repent and cut off what he sees as an adulterous affair with the world and come back to him. The choice is clear, isn't it? Give your whole heart to Jesus. Your whole heart.
Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center, all the time.